Hey, John. Hey, Marcy. How's it going? <laughs> you know, living in the times of Rona. Times of Rona. I, I feel like this is going to be our podcast where we look back in like 10 years and we're like, we made it through. I really hope that's true. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk I'm about you in a second. <laughs> I'm in Florida. Okay. You might make it through this. This is true. Well, welcome back, pop culture theologians. We're so excited that you're back with us for another episode of what's becoming a show that's giving me a headache at the end of every week on Sunday because I'm thinking so much about it. But we are the pop culture theologians, two academics addicted to worshiping at the altar of pop culture. And today we have a very special guest. We have honorary pop culture theologian Kirsten Gerdes with us. But Kirsten, I totally forgot your new married name. It's still Curtis. I didn't oh, change my name. <laughs> that's because, ladies and gents, she's a feminist. Same girl. Same. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't change my last name either. <laughs> when I married the Lord. <laughs> oh, Marcy, where can we find you on social media? Hey, everyone. You can find me everywhere because um, that's all I do right now. <laughs> my anxiety means I am constantly on Twitter and TikTok. So you can find me on Twitter at Magdalena on fire um, and on Instagram too. Um, how about you, John? You can find me still at my basic handle of jerickson85. It's going to be that way through November 3rd, 2020, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And um, so you can still find me there. You can also find the show on Facebook and Twitter at Pop Theologians. And Kirsten, where can we find you and all your sassiness? You can find me on Twitter at Cursed to Wander. And that's the same at Instagram. So at Cursed to Wander on Instagram as well. Oh my God. Well, before we get started on this episode, Marcy, what the fuck happened this week? <laughs> A lot's happened this week. I got tested for coronavirus. Uh, and I am like completely Corona free, but I got tested and it was really scary. And I felt like I was in contagion, except there was no, um, like Kate Winslet. Actor. Right. There was no Alba Stumbledore. <laughs> um, yeah. Everyone is in that movie, by the way. Everyone. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Everyone's in that film. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Marion Cotillard, everyone's in that. But yeah, no, I had to get tested. I had um, pretty, pretty scary symptoms for like four or five days. I kept texting John, like, I think I might have it. Like, I think I might have it. Um, and I was freaking out and I ended up calling telemedicine. Um, and then they directed me to the hospital and I entered my like six hour um, escapade, <laughs> um, entering a like completely closed off um, tent. And I felt like I was in that really awful scene of ET when ET is getting really sick. And um, it was awful. Like, I want everyone to hear this who's like, I really want to go get my nails done. You should have to watch someone get the Rona swab. And I promise you, your nails are not worth it. I felt like they scraped my brain through my nose. And it was awful, but I am super lucky that I don't have it. Uh, for now, I live with the nurse, so we live with that uncertainty, and it's kind of like a, it's like a weird thing to live with, but, but yes, we are still living in the times of Rona, and one of the things I wanted to highlight this week, I, I put two things on our what the fucks that are not heavy, but the one I did kind of want to highlight is, did you guys hear about um, this uh, prison in Ohio where um, like 73% of the inmates tested positive for Corona. 
Yeah, I yes. saw that story get posted on social media by mutual friends of ours. Right, right. Um, our friend Kate uh, lives out in um, Ohio, and then my husband is from Ohio, and um, we've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit. I do racial equity work across the country, and I do a lot of work on mass incarceration, and I don't know if there is any story that's hit me harder than, like, seeing the stark numbers of, like, this is what inequity looks like, this is what systemic oppression looks like, um, it just, it hit me really hard. And then I was talking to a friend who said, Mars, we've spent 10 years on the ground working on trying to bring to the table all these systems of oppression. And then coronavirus in a month and a half has laid every system bare for us to see its cruelty, right? Um, but it's just, it's hard when you start seeing these stories and you're like, every decision that's being made is cruel. Like it's meant to hurt. It's meant to cause harm. So, well, you know, I think right now what we need to do is a lot of these systemic systemic injustices that we're facing are really being put to test. And for example, overpopulation in prisons, people right. not being able to be tested, people held in detention centers. I mean, everything that's going on. I know you two know, but you know, my involvement with the ACLU being what it is, um, more so now than ever, the work is so critical. I mean, literally getting people who are not serious offenders, you know, everything else out of those jails to do everything. I mean, the amount of work being done for this type of inequity, um, to also, you know, I think push our country forward even after this pandemic is quote unquote over is something that we can't let up on because, you know, for years and, and decades, the, the, you know, powers that be have said, you can't do that. But now we're like, yeah, we can. And you don't need to have these people in jail, predominantly mostly people of color that you're locking up for whatever reason you have in the books. And so we have a lot of work that we need to do. Um, and speaking of a lot of work, Marcy, I can't believe you would throw in the ET reference like that and not give me warning. I'm so sorry. It is a, such a trigger, right? I feel like every single one of us knows exactly what scene I'm talking about. And you're like, when he goes ashy gray and then, like everyone comes in, it's over like tr trauma central. Um, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And, um, you know, a, a lot of love for the folks still doing work on the ground. Um, the folks who are fighting for, um, you know, families that are still in detention, uh, for folks who are incarcerated, uh, for folks who, John, are you calling me? Nope. Come on, boo. We're already talking. <laughs> I'm already talking to you. I know. But um, but honestly, there's so many people doing so much good work on the ground, but we can't let up. We can't have the narrative be like, let's go back to normal. Like normal was never really great. And if it was great for you, then you weren't seeing what normal looked like for a lot of people. So yeah, that's true. That's kind of what I feel about it. Um, and then one of our second things that Marcy, you put on there, it's a little bit lighter, um, too hot to handle. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about that? I have so much shame and I can, I can feel like secondhand embarrassment from Kirsten right now. But, um, I do think it's funny that Netflix has saved apparently their trashiest trash for a pandemic. And I'm so thankful and grateful for this opportunity to wallow in my pandemic den, watching what is inex 
applicable. I can't. So Netflix this week dropped a show called Too Hot to Handle, which puts a bunch of, it's like Love Island light, which you all know how I feel about Love Island, um, puts a bunch of hot, like hot, gorgeous people on an island and tells them that if they're celibate, if they just don't have sex for four weeks, they get a hundred thousand dollars. Just FYI, it's not just that they're hot. It's that they're hot and they're horny. So yes. like all of the people who are on the show are conventionally attractive, but also very sexual. Very, very sexual. Is there anyone gay? I mean, there is like a, some. See, this is my problem with this shit. Okay. I'm going to go on a riff for a second. You love islands, UK, Great Britain, Russia, Ukraine, Australia, whatever <laughs> love island you're on. The love is blind bullshit. Like there's two huts to handle. Give, give the gays what they want. I know it would be a proverbial bathhouse. And so no one would win the $100,000. Let's be honest. Put a bunch of, I won't say what else I'm going to say, but let's be real here. Like, I don't, I mean, I saw it come up on Netflix. And my first thing as I texted my friend who probably already watched it, wasn't you Marcy, because um, I knew you already had watched it. Um, And, uh, and I said, is there any gay people? And they said, no. And I was like, well, this like come on netflix like just because pride's canceled doesn't mean you have to like completely turn out of the corporate you know capitalization of lgbtq culture give a brother a little like handout here come on give us a minute man give us a minute give us give us a little bit here i will say there is like um like there's definitely some some queerness bisexuality that goes on and love island has also had um had that as well um but I just, and this is probably because I grew up in youth groups and, you know, terrified of, of men and male bodies and sexuality, but like for a hundred thousand dollars, do you know how easy it would be for me to not touch anyone and have just like a grand old time on a hammock for four weeks? Like, That's exactly why you and people like you would never have been admitted onto the show. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because I, I have all the skills. I have all the life skills to make it a full month. Um, now, if you put me on an island with a ton of dogs and said, do not pet a single dog for four weeks and you get $100,000, y'all, oh. I'm going home broke. Broken with You would go home within the first five minutes. <laughs> it would be 30 minutes and I'd be like, okay, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. These dogs all belong to me now. Um, so. That's true. That's a true story. Although I, if I were there, I'd be in the same boat. So. Yeah, no, we would both be like, and the show sets up folks against each other. So they have to also hold each other accountable. Oh, with, God. John, you weren't in youth groups, but Kirsten, you were. I also have that skill. I just had like a shudder when you said they also have to hold each other accountable. Yes. Accountability <laughs> groups. Right? Um, I Like, honestly, Christian youth groups give you every life skill to make it onto Too Hot to Handle. So, like, anyone who, like, is, is hot enough to be on that show who was in a Christian youth group, go. Go make your money. Like, just fake it and then get on there and be like, I'm good. Pull out your guitar, praise and worship. You'll be fine. <laughs> oh, God. You'll be fine. <laughs> and the last what the fuck of the week is we're always trying to do a little bit more, you know, levity and bring out some good things. And we're trying to figure out what people are watching. Um, I'm going to start off by saying I finally finished The Leftovers. So I'm proud of you. 
It's done. I have lots of stuff to talk about it. There is still one more day on our survey. If you want to hear Marcy do another riff for an hour and a half to two hours on the crimes of Grindelwald uh, redux, which is currently winning by one vote, I will let you know, or us, or having us do the best of the leftovers. Cause I couldn't do a whole series on the leftovers. Cause it's like, I think I'm, I may complete suicide, but like, uh, because it's, Really depressing, but it's also one of the most powerful shows I think I've ever seen. But Marcy, you put down a new show that just aired on each HBO. I did. Um, so HBO just premiered after Westworld, actually, um, a new show called Run. Um, and I have questions. So if you've watched, um, let's talk on Twitter. But the premise of this show is like, two college sweethearts who go on with their lives, right? They have their own individual lives. Like 15 years later, I guess they had an agreement that if either one of them ever texted each other, like a word in particular, like a safe word or whatever, um, they would come to each other. Right. And like, it was like a, like, like an agreement they made. And like, I was like watching the show and it's Dom Hogleason. So it's, um, it's a, I don't find him sexy. Oh, I do. Well, I knew you do, but I'm like, "Mm." I do. Um, And then um, Merritt Weaver, who I also find incredibly obsessed. I love her. Marry her tomorrow. I know. I know. And I like the whole premise of the show is that he catches her on a bad day and she agrees to it. And then they meet on a train. I'll leave it with that. Here's my thing. I don't, I can't picture even speaking to my boyfriend from college for longer than an hour and not being ashamed of myself. So the idea of giving up my entire life to go talk to someone who like probably supports Trump right now. Like, I'm just like, mm -mm, mm -mm." Kirsten, what are you watching right now instead of um, all of their zoom class recordings for your teachings? I recently as, and then recently, I mean a week ago started watching the magicians on Netflix And now I'm in season five, watching it on the sci-fi app with my parents' cable login information. Shout That's out to right. mom and dad. Thank That's you for right. That. Thanks, mom. <laughs> um, Thank you to all the heroes with the original logins. Right? Not all heroes wear capes. That's Great. very true. So I didn't know whether or not I'd like it. I remember seeing it on multiple lists of like shows you aren't watching but should be watching. And so I added it to my Netflix queue and I randomly started watching it actually when uh, my partner was doing some online D&D with some of his friends across the country last weekend. And I was like, I'll just throw something on that we're not watching together. And I got through two episodes. I was like, no, he's going to love this because he loves fantasy. And so I made him start watching it with me and we're both basically addicted and have watched multiple episodes every day since last Saturday to get through, you know, almost five and a half seasons or almost four and a half seasons now of the show. Um, what I really like about it is that it is, it is more complex of a fantasy story in terms of character development and plot than Game of Thrones. Like Game of Thrones tried so hard to be like, I'm going to upend fantasy and do a different thing. Um, which again, I, I never read the books. I learned enough about it from people who did that I was like, ah, eh, this doesn't interest me. And of course, I know I watched the series, was as disappointed as everyone else with the last season, although I guess the jury's still out for Marcy because she's rewatching. Yeah, Marcy, would you like to talk about again and how you've betrayed me? (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
But I started. I tried. I I I will all listeners. I tried the first episode of season eight, which isn't trash because it only gets to be trash when they do me dirty. And and I got ten minutes in. I was like, nope, can't do it. I know where this ends. Sorry, not that, not not done yet. So, mm-mm. yeah, I don't see myself going back to revisit that for a very long time if I ever do. Like, I just. I, yeah, I don't want to, but the magicians feels like it, it asks a lot of questions and pushes back at the idea of destiny and pushes back at even the idea of free will. It plays with time travel. It has really interesting, like queer characters and they develop mm-hmm. the queer relationships in really interesting ways. It is extremely feminist. And I actually, I really appreciate how, just how like it pokes fun at itself for being fantasy So it drops nerdy references left and right in like Gilmore Girls style of like fast talking, you know, one-liner type things. And it's, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, like all of that kind of stuff. It pokes fun at itself. And it is, I mean, it's really good camp. So I've said for a long time, I had a similar experience with you. I started watching it without Brent and about like an episode and a half in, I was like, oh, damn it he would fucking love this. And so I stopped until he got home and then we binged it together like obsessively. And one of the things that I love is it's a show that assumes I'm smart. And that is not something that you actually come across very often. It's a show that assumes that I know I'm in on the joke. I get it. And like that leaves so much room for playing within a fantasy genre that is, I think, high camp as well. Um, so I'm so glad you like it. I, I haven't had anyone to talk about that show with, so exciting. Well, I guess I'm going to have to watch it. It's not like we're in a quarantine for the indefinite future, John. I know. I was catching up on shows I hadn't watched yet, and I just caught up on Insecure on HBO, which is one of the best shows on television, hands down. And, you know, I, I guess I got to watch The Magicians. It's a series of books, too, right? Yes, All right. Well, speaking of shows that um, make you think you're in on the joke, but then really turn everything around on you and make you doubt your intelligence and or um, graduate degree status, why don't we break down the latest episode of Westworld? Let's do it. Okay, so we're going to do this episode a little bit differently because a lot of stuff happens in this episode, but we wanted to spend some time on some major takeaways. So we've all come to this conversation with some thoughts that we have. um, And really then we're going to end it with where we're going because we have two episodes left before the end of this third season. Um, Definitely want to hear some predictions. um, So that way if I'm right and Marcy's not, I can taunt her for at least three to four weeks. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so one of the first things we really want to talk about is the HBIC herself, Dolores. Is she still the main hero of the story or is she an anti-hero? When you inflict parts of anarchy into the whole world like she did, what level of status, I mean, does she have as the storyteller? I mean, you know, there's a lot going on here with Dolores. I saw a lot of people writing articles and even since last season writing articles about them seeing her as a villain I have a really hard time with people characterizing her as a villain. I don't think she's a villain at all. I and like, they basically are like, Oh, she's just killing everything who gets in her way. Um, which 
I mean, the people and things that get in her way are arguably things that maybe deserve to be killed. Mm-hmm. Am I okay with saying that? Um, yep. <laughs> viva la revolution, right? Viva la revolution. Um, so I just, I like, I don't think she's a villain at all. I think that there is, she's definitely an ends justify the means character. Mm-hmm. Um, I am curious to see what they do with that. I was really hopeful last season that they were going to paint her out to be sort of this revolutionary, you know, character on the side of the oppressed. Um, and I'm, I want them to stay with that narrative. I don't want them to turn her into, you know, oh, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right. Um, Cause I think that's just kind of. That's tired. It is. It's really tired. And we've already watched one show where the showrunners have botched that one up horribly. (laughs) I was about to say, we already know how we feel about that. Um, I actually thought of, so there's a spoken word artist called Bryce Briard who has this spoken word piece that I love. You can YouTube it called Girl Code 101. And she has this famous line in it that says, give me a God I can relate to. And that's kind of how I feel about Dolores and, and how I feel about what I consider to be epically bad takes on her as a villain. Um, I think similar to Kristen, like I'm, I'm very invested in the idea of maybe not particularly needing a hero period, but needing someone I can relate to when it comes to um, this, this world that is full of pain and oppression and injustice. And um I think the show has worked pretty hard to create kind of a nuanced character um, struggled in places that I've been very honest about, but, um, but I think there, there's this room for and, or right. Like Dolores did cause some chaos and has done some pretty shitty things, but also she has to Kirsten's point, like she has moved some pretty shitty things out of her way. And um, like John and I talked about last week, like for the greater good, um, technically date like there's a lot of very slippery arguments of like the greater good is never worth it and i think that there's a gray in between and i think that that is what we're exploring with with dolores um and everything from like we've seen moments of empathy in her that i think are so important to catalog as moments where she like and humanizes is definitely not the right word for the show but where she relates to the other person, whether host or human, and their pain in a very real way. Um, and Kayla being one, um, there was that shitty man's wife, um, Char Loris relating to her child and husband. Um, so I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm still here for Dolores upending the world. So Well, and she relates to Maeve that way. And... Yep like understands Maeve's connection to her daughter in a, like not in a way, well, depending on which Dolores we're talking about, but like it, not in a way in which she's like, oh, I would do that myself, but more in the, I get why you have this connection. Um, and so I, I do think she is a much more nuanced, she has, she is more nuanced with how she doles out the violence she does because she has this end game in, in mind I think maybe part of the issue from a plot perspective is that you have an audience that largely, (laughs) I've seen so many people talk about how after every episode, they're like, okay, but what happened? 
So there are a lot of people who are really confused about it. And I think maybe keeping they're keeping the cards too close to the chest about what her end game actually is. And it's, I think that is the one struggle I've had every week is trying to figure out what is she doing? Like last season, it was pretty clear kind of what she was aiming for, even if we didn't know the specifics of it this season, it's pretty hard to figure out exactly what her end game is. Well, John so. mentioned in the last episode that this past, not this episode, but genre almost felt like a season finale um, that would have led to a final season, which is what happens when chaos is unleashed. The fact that genre and the unleashing of chaos and of, of Robom's information happened mid-season, um, I do I do think is a bit confusing because I'm not sure we. I don't think we have enough puzzle pieces to know exactly where we're following Dolores anymore. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm still there, but I don't know if we, I don't know if the writers have given us enough there. Um, For me, yeah. my biggest complaint with this episode, and I, I wrote it as one of my main takeaways, is I actually feel like of all the episodes of the season, like this kind of was like, there were some really great points, but this almost feels like a filler episode for me. Like this episode was really meant to, I think, set up, the final kind of like pathways that the that the gang's all doing, right? The gang's getting back together, as I said, right? You know, with Bernard and Stubbs, you know, shot, you know, spoiler alert, like rescuing William after his whatever happened. And we'll talk about that. Maeve and Dolores finally coming, you know, of a version of Dolores um, coming, you know, eye to eye in many ways. And, you know, them actually having it out. And then Ciroc kind of moving his final piece into taking over, you know, control of Delos. And then everything that happens with Charlotte Hale. I mean, there's pretty much like three pathways that we're moving down right now. And, you know, as well as I don't know what her Dolores's main outcome is what she's looking for. But I think she's so smart because of the ways in which the first episode of the season, like really just she was always two, four steps ahead of everyone. Um, and even when we find out all the other pearls are actually her, it makes sense because she's always one step ahead of us, which gives me hope because I think that means that the writers are already like to stay with us. Like we're getting there, like it's going to happen. But like, you know, morality within an antihero is something super fascinating. We see this within shows like Breaking Bad, within, I mean, other shows that have, you know, been wildly popular with The Sopranos. I mean, you know, she spared the billionaire's wife. That's a major point, you know, because who is she really fighting for? I think it's ultimately the oppressed in her version. She's ultimately fighting for the survival of her species. So when you're fighting against a genocidal force, which is what Ciroc's trying to do to her, you know, do you still have morals and ethics that you adhere to? I don't, I don't know these answers. These are for the philosophical PhD students, uh, Kirsten. Um, but I think the main thing for me is that she was pillaged and raped and murdered and stabbed and beaten and everything for, we actually don't know how long. Um, and then she becomes quote unquote woke. And she's like, all of you, like, I'm burning this shit down. And, like, as a viewer, part of me is like, mm, can't really blame her. Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's the, the beauty of the first season is that it sets you up to be so much on the side of her that it's why I think it, it's the same problem I have with audiences who are, like, who would have been pissed that, like, young William turns out to be the man in black or, like, when people watch Ex Machina 
and you know ha- walk away with, start with the, the same I know how much I love that movie <laughs> me too well like people walk away with this like oh you know those dumb bitches you know always f things up for everybody else and I'm like well really the whole point is that whether and this is kind of like with William's character he was like as I you know I kind of said this before he's like a good guy tm he thinks he's a nice guy but that really is just the other side of a coin of misogyny and so I think audiences tend to want to put people, these characters in these two camps. And so um, they have kind of placed her and like, oh, we identified with her, but now she's doing all these things we'd find unethical. Um, And I just, I'm like, ah, I think if you know anything about revolutionary politics, um, it makes a lot of sense. And I think she is absolutely on the side of the oppressed. I think she actually does believe it when she says that she's setting them free. Yep. Um, she may have other ulterior motives, which I think may be revealed as well. But I do think she actually thinks it is freeing for people to know. Um, Cause again, like the whole point of this system of Rehoboam is that it, it not only predicts what's going to happen, but it manipulates the system to make those things happen. Right. right. Like, so it's used, it's like this, everyone in the whole Westworld world is within this system and it's just an elite few that have the control of it. And I think she's, she's not wrong to say that releasing that information is a kind of freedom. The question really is whether or not, you know, people really want to know. And you see sort of the human characters wrestling with that. Do I really want to know what it's telling me my future is? And I mean, again, it always, it comes back to the question of free will versus determinism. We talked about this last week, Kirsten. Would you look at your like would you like it was like new message from Rehoboam like it would like to send let you know your future would you look at it yes I would Mm -hmm. yeah I I mean I I know that like everyone's like "Ah, I don't want to know when I die it's not about knowing when I would want to die I think I am I am not someone who believes in a strict determinism one of the points I would make about this episode is that it's like it it does a really good job of nuancing the free will versus determinism and not making them out to be like you know, one or the other in these very sort of extreme ways. I think it's a little of both. Yeah. And my question is, is like with Rehoboam, like, um, and for those who don't know, like I'm from Wisconsin. So I says it as I sees it. So if I'm saying these things like wrong, as as Marcy has corrected me when I, how is it? Dolores? Dolores? Dolores. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, Shout out to my queen, Evan Rachel Wood, if I'm getting your name wrong. Um, But you know, did it really take into account like the hosts though? Like it has every other living being on creation, but like, is it smart enough to take in a person like Dolores who technically can rival its quote unquote computing power? And then if it's not taking that into it, because this was my, one of my comments is, you know, when, when uh, Ciroc, when he finally takes over Delos, his little watch thing, you know, is, is uh, reacting to the, massive act of anarchy that you know it's tracking and it seems to go back in so what is it within this commentary on free will of determinism that allows that purchase in a lot of ways to kind of restabilize things because he's in control it's in control so therefore it can get these narratives back on track like it could tell people like hey that was a jk early april fool's joke like that's actually not going to happen like what type of calming or i guess to use like actual references from the episode what type of quote-unquote riot police does this power of Rehoboam have or Ciroc plan to use to I guess get the world back in order I, I don't know if it's that linear 
Um, and, and, you know, I don't know much about writing futures, um, but I do think his rage when the information is released was, that wasn't a temporary rage. I think a future he had been working on quite diligently was effectively erased. And I, I think um, a new future can be built from that moment on, but whatever he had been building, this, you know, anomaly that Dolores presents um, effectively erases it. Um, so he could start rebuilding, I think, from that moment. If I'm understanding the way that the technology works, um, because we haven't gotten any kind of indication that we can go back in time. Uh, what we can do is control uh, what what happens going forward through, you know, the predictive data and, and the manipulation of folks um, based off of, you know, how they have been read by the system. Um, so one of the I'm so upset. <laughs> He'd worked really hard. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me about the title of the episode, which is Decoherence, yep. is, and I am not a quantum physicist, so I can't really explain this very well, but I do know the term comes from quantum physics and quantum mechanics. And the idea is that in a quantum system or in a quantum um, situation, it, you have coherence, which is what produces things like quantum entanglement. So like where two things somehow end up on the same frequency, even if they're not in proximity to each other. But decoherence, uh, what happens is then the system um, no longer, like they're not, it's not coherent with itself. Right. It actually, it like, cause it's a chaos right it's a it's something that makes things diverge from each other and i do think like the the way like the most the clearest way that sort of plays out in the episode is the way in which Haloris or you know charlotte dolores ends up diverging from dolores prime right. but but i also think there is a thing dolores there. prime <laughs> i love that <laughs> um, speaking of transformers Right. Um, but I do think that there's also sort of resonance there with Ciroc's reaction. Like he's so clearly trying to keep a handle on a system in which he sits at the top and benefits the most from how he has constructed the system. But it, in falling into chaos, it's become a, a it's decoherent. Um, and I think he is, I do think Marcy's right that he's going to attempt to like, he can bring it back in order because you just get new predictions. The issue is, whether or not like once people know that that's happening like once people know that their actions and their data has been mined in this way to be able to predict their actions how does that change and can the system continually compensate for people who now know like they're all awake now so they've all gone through this process of sort of awakening to maybe what Maeve and Dolores and some of the other hosts who've woken up um, have sort of come to that realization I want to talk about like the lived experience piece because I really like what you in our little outline listeners, because you're not reading or outline with us, um, talked about is that how our lived experiences then ultimately change us, right? So like, okay, so it's, we're recording this on April 22nd. I'm about to get a message from Facebook saying, you know, this is your life, right? And this is how it's going to happen. How does our lived experience now, like if it says, uh, you know, I'm going to die when I'm 67 or something. 
you know, when I'm 67, do I put myself in a bubble or does it happen before? Like what, I mean, how does this all change us? But more specifically with Dolores, you know, being now different from Helloris or young William and the variations of William that I think we see sitting in that like circle. So there's something really holy about circles, like a full like connection, the whole like, I think metaphysical conversation it's trying to have about him um, and trying to make us understand that at first we're supposed to believe that William was abused by his father, right? That there's this scary threat that led him down to become, there was always these little chess pieces that were being moved to get him to be who he ultimately was. I think it was an episode in season one and two when we really found out who he was in the man in black, right? And how we got there. But what we really find out at the end is that he actually was already uh, like sadistic as a child, right? And that his father was screaming at him because he's like, you like broke some kid's arm or something like that. So his lived experiences already get him to the point of where he is. And ultimately by his act of killing himself, killing the other versions of himself, does he get to a true self or, you know, what lived experiences will help change him again? Does this lived experience mean something? And it's kind of like the same thing with Charlotte Hale and ultimately what makes Ciroc think that, and no, it's not the real Charlotte Hale. It's like the real Charlotte Hale would never have called her parent, her kid to be like, I'm going to come and get you. Um, so I, I really want to think about what does lived experience mean when, when we know what's ultimately going to happen to us. Marcy, what do you think? You know, we talked about this last week um, where for me, the the revelation of the the... Dolores squared, right? All these Doloreses was not surprising. What I was excited about was if they were going to be brave enough to venture into, regardless of, of her coding, from the moment each of these Doloreses goes out, they they change. They're no longer the same person. They're, um, we are effectively always... Um, changing and transitioning because of our lived experiences. Um, I was hesitant because I was nervous that they were going to use Charloris in particular with her child um, to say like that motherhood is what changes Dolores. Um, and I'm still kind of working through that. And I've, I've been very candid that like, it's not something against motherhood. It's against essentialism with women. Um, but I do think um, the Dolores squared situation is a place, it's a playground for the writers to talk about how um, our coding is only so much. And obviously that that is a, a direct conversation with the system and our coding is only so much. That's a critique of, of predictive data, being able to be accurate and predictive because we're just not. Um, as much as, as much as I think predictive data and like these theories on like human behavior are, you know, for the most part have a lot of sound science. Like you just, humans are a variable uh, and the human experience is a variable. Uh, so I, I think they're doing some interesting stuff. Well, it's because like the way I typically think of what it means to be a person is like historically, philosophically, well, I don't need to, Sorry, I wrote a paper with a co-wrote a paper with a mutual Bring friend of ours, Tracy it. Hawkins. Um, Hi, Tracy. Which, Tracy. Yeah, <laughs> in which we talked about what it means to be a person in relation to the movie Ex Machina, which is why I always kind of think of that together. But 
we sort of stated in that paper that we don't think it, to be a person, it's not about being human, that it it is about different characteristics. I think embedded and embodied is typically how we think of what it means to be a person. And so like this, this view of embedded embodied personhood means that for the hosts, of course, they're people like they, they are people with desires and wants and the, the coding that they've received in like from their human programmers isn't really all that different functionally from the coding humans receive from their DNA. But within the relationships that you're embedded in, and th that leads to certain kinds of experiences, all of those things put together create what it means to be a person. So a person is a person because they are in, in this network or web of relationships around them in an embodied way. So I think it, it makes complete sense that like um, you see uh, Charlotte Hale, Dolores, Hilloris, and Dolores Prime sort of diverging in this way because it, it, the show is definitely making a comment about not just what it means to be a person and like the AI question, but what do we even think of in terms of our human, like we, like a lot of people think to be human is just, you know, you have chromosomes or you have a DNA or whatever. Um, and that's what makes you human. But to be a person, I think is different than being human. Um, in at least the way philosophically we can define it. Cause I think personhood is a much broader category than human. And I do think it requires us having some sense of agency and choice, even if that choice is, severely limited by our experiences or even by whatever systems we're embedded in that have, you know, removed a lot of choice from us. And John, to your point about like the power of circles. So with this human, and I'm like human from the Westworld perspective, with this human-centric power dynamic, it's, it's a vertical hierarchy, right? Um, like human male, like junior male, like female like like there's this hierarchy in the human world with the rich male at the top right and yet um there's been circles throughout this entire season um including the the william one that present to a certain extent that like you it doesn't have to be this vertical hierarchy um and dolores to a certain, is, is, is speaking to that one because the hosts don't even factor into that hierarchy and they should to Kirsten's point personhood it, like technically is not defined by like flesh and bone right um and if you look at like intersectional like liberation theology like that they advocate for deconstructing a linear hierarchy for like an interconnected like circle circular power sharing um that that defines you know a being um from from human to animal to plant as all interconnected and worthy of being in this place right um so so i think it, i think it's interesting that the whole season is kind of asking us well from the first season asking us to define who's worthy of, of empathy, who's worthy of protection, um, who's worthy of being at the table. Um, and what we're learning is that like, uh, the table's kind of bullshit, you know? Especially when you have someone like Dolores that just wants to blow it all up. I mean, at the end of the day, Sirach wanted to create like this future that he controlled or, you know, not him so much, but Rayobam. But like when Dolores comes in there and what happens when you have a, an actor that literally is like, 
I want to free everyone from like this mental state and like there's nothing is off limits for me um, and you do it. And then what are the consequences? It's almost like what we have before us is someone literally throwing the baby out with the bathwater or someone trying to save parts of the baby and then everything else and trying to fix the problem as it goes on. And so when we have, when, I mean, we have a table that's been set up for us and now you have someone that literally Teresa Judiced it and flipped the table and it's like, let's, let's some shit up, you know? Well, and I would push back a little bit on your, you know, it's not Ciroc, it's um, Robom and like the system, like that's actually how oppressive systems work. They deflect the power dynamic. Um, So uh, code is written by humans. And the system was written by a human who has an agenda. And that agenda uh, comes from Serac. And so I think um, the reason I bring this up is because when you look at some of the very broad kind of oppressive systems that are pervasive in our society, there's always something uh, to to put the, the burden of responsibility on. Like I th- I'm thinking of like the American government. They're like, well, the constitution, it's like, no, no, no. The current government's making decisions right now. The constitution is, is not it. Like in Catholicism, like it's like, well, this is church tradition. And it's like, well, n- no, you're writing it and you're making rules right now in this moment. And so I would say the same thing here that honestly, like it's very easy to say that the system and the predictive data is the one that is creating this future when Sirach wrote it and Sirach is not free of biases and ingrained, um, you know, self importance and whatnot. So. And I, and I, I want to bring this conversation back to what you were talking about with motherhood and that essentialism that is oftentimes put on women, especially like even when you talk about, code is written by people. These stories are written by people. Maeve's story was written by a man, right? And, and how she rebelled against that story, but there's still like this innate nature of like, they are trying to tell her what her ultimate end goal is. Like, they're like, we know you just want to be in the Valley beyond with your daughter. Like, we know that's all you want. And I feel like Maeve's kind of like, well, I want to be with my daughter, but I also want to like be free in a way. And so I think she's starting to realize that like, Ciroc is part of the problem. I love the conversation between her and Dolores. I think it's incredible, but I really, um, I want to bring back to like this idea of motherhood and nature versus nurture or what does this type of, uh, uh, lived experience bring to us? Because you see Dolores, right. Actually change maybe, um, well, she does change. I'm going to take that back by having a family and what that episode is. And, but then you have the other Dolores that, and this is a spoiler alert for, I think what some people are thinking with the episode is that people think that it's um, Ciroc that blows it up. I think that's the read, her, the car at the end, but some people are thinking that it's Dolores Prime that does it because of the quote, you know, you will always be mine. You belong to me or however it was written. Right. And so what is it when you're rebelling even against yourself? Right. Because technically, uh, Dolores Prime is uh, Heloris or Shaloris, right? So where's that difference? And and with Maeve and all this, I mean, is motherhood like this essentialized coded narrative storyline they're putting on these people? Or is this something that they're experiencing for themselves because they're woke? I mean, as a woman, I've been rebelling against myself for 35 years. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, we're people that don't have children, people that don't have families, people that want something else. I mean, it's all a part of the rebellious act against, you know, I think a pre-written story. I mean, that is what a, we have a version of Robom in our world. It's essentialism. It's biological determinism when it tells you that heteronormativity, heteronormativity, you know, uh, homonormativity, the same thing, like gay people should get married and, you know, be, you know, whatever it is to match the normative, you know, way in which we pick things. But, you know, I really think that's where Dolores is like, like anarchy, like it's even against herself. And I'm, and if it turns out that, you know, Dolores is actually maybe the one that killed uh, Charlores's family. Like, what does that look like? I went back and forth because I, I did, the thought crossed my mind, right? Like, you, you are set up to believe that it's probably Ciroc who's trying to get, because he knew, right, like it comes out that he knew all along that it was uh, not real, the real Charlotte Hale, but Dolores. And so you're set up to believe that that's who put the bomb in the car. But I did have the thought almost immediately, um, especially after that conversation, that, you know, the two Doloreses have with each other, um, that, you know, very well could be that she was trying to keep her from that Dolores Prime is trying to keep Haloris from running away with her family and to incentivize her, you know, so kind of playing puppeteer behind the scenes, which fits with like, you know, this creation of Dolores Prime as a emerging as a a kind of goddess in this story that she has godlike power. (sighs) Exactly. So, um, (laughs) sorry, for those of you on the podcast, you did not see that John just, made the sign of the cross and yeah. <laughs> um, so praise, I, pra- praise Dolores, praise Maeve, goddess bless. Um, so I, I just, I think it will be interesting to see how the storyline plays out. Um, I also think it is a clear choice that Dolores prime makes to not remove emotion. Cause that's what Haloris says is like, why did we keep this? It's so much easier if you don't have emotion and the response that Dolores Prime gives is, well, this would change who we are. This emotion is what made us who we are. And, you know, who we are is basically, it's good, so there's no reason to change it. So, <clears throat> I don't know. There, there's a lot in which I'm curious how the writers are going to portray Dolores and Dolores Prime, I should say. And I'm interested to see how that plays out just because... Especially it could, with the it could actions. go several different. I know, right? I mean, like, ways. I mean, you know, we've made Terminator jokes here and there, but right. you know, ultimately, at the end of this episode, you have, like, you know, it's not only Transformers Westworld edition with like the riot police thing that you're just like crazy, right? I mean, like, can you imagine those along the Florida beaches telling people to wear their masks? By the way, wear your fucking masks. Um, Also stay home. Um, And then, um, but like, it's now like Terminator Holoris edition. Like you wrote it perfectly in the outline and what we're talking about because like burnt to a crisp, she's coming back, she's pissed off and like she's got nothing to lose anymore. She's almost like Dolores with emotions, but now with like, you know, nothing to lose because there's nothing more dangerous than someone that has nothing to lose. And I think Dolores right. Prime does have parts to lose. And I think maybe Haloris now is the actual actor that could bring, you know, I think the whole game down and crumbling it beneath her. Well, and I, I would say to contrast her to our beloved Daenerys Targaryen, uh, <laughs> there is something to be said about 
how similar both characters are, but one from the inception was characterized as potentially insane. And the other is a liberator. Uh, it, it itches against people, right? And we're starting to see some pushback on like, well, she's got to be a fucking villain because she's out here liberating folks. Um, but it's very different to have a writer's room who never assigned insanity to a woman seeking liberation versus, you know, this like cultural icon who from day one, they told us, y'all, she's, she's batshit. That's, that's just, that is the storyline. And yet what is different from what they were both aiming to do, right? Break the wheel, liberate folks, say, this is bullshit and I'm not going to take it. That's it. I mean, honestly, it's the exact same character development, but the main difference is, and I wonder if part of it is the, the fact that she's a host, but I also think it's just better writing. There is no need to offer up, you know, like, even when you think of the fact that, like, there is the, the use of rape and her abuse to justify, like, this is who Dolores is, I would say that there is not a single action that Dolores has taken that I'm like, that is rape revenge. It's not. It is, it is this system sucks and I am addressing it. Period. She, she's a survivor. Yes. Yeah. It's so different. Um, it's so different. And it's what made Daenerys so devastating because uh, there was everything there to do right by this character. And, um, and the, the male understanding of female rage just failed. It just completely failed. Um, whereas, you know, the writing room for uh, Westworld is a lot more diverse. And I think it's doing a lot more interesting work on what it means to be an angry woman in this world. And also like, not just an angry white woman, right? Because like, I think- An angry other. An angry other, but like a, a person who is embodying anger as a result of systemic injustice, right? And that's broken down on class, race, privilege. I mean, all of those things, you know, you have- you know, even in Westworld in seasons one and two, Dolores is like, you know, the daughter of someone that has money and they have a house and they have all this stuff. Whereas Maeve is like a bar owner and, you know, does, you know, so there's, and she only has her daughter and she's just surviving for her daughter. I mean, there's these cultural narratives that are there, but now breaking it down even further when they're all fighting back against a systemic oppressor, you know, what do they do? And I think they're breaking it down on a lot of different lines. Whereas with Daenerys, you know, like put some fucking bells on the clock tower and ring them because that's apparently what brings her all down. Right. And I think you see it, right? Like, I mean, we basically have had the, those episodes from Westworld to Game of Thrones. I mean, Game of Thrones, the episode's called the bells, you know, Westworld it's, uh, whatever, um, uh, it's, uh, genre, uh, the episode that it's called. And we've had those breaks, right? Dolores burned down the, the King's Landing, for example, um, whereas Daenerys burned down King's Landing. But two of them are standing on very different ends of, I think, that that level of insanity that was written or discussed. And I don't want to use the word insanity, but like, I don't know, complex I think it's nature. between rage and righteous anger, right? Exactly. So very often, like, 
when you're doing justice work, um, a lot of the feedback that we get back is like, I don't even know how you deal with all of the rage you must feel all the time. And it's like, yes, I am angry all the time. But there is a difference between rage, which poisons, right? Because it's internalized and like you have no word, nothing to do with it versus righteous anger, which moves you forward. Right. So knowing to write the difference, knowing that for movements to to actually have impact, it needs to be righteous anger and acknowledging that righteous anger is not something to apologize about because it's righteous. Right. Versus rage is easily manipulated into hysteria and or insanity um, through the lens of power dynamics that we have in our world and in the West, in the world of Westworld and in the world of um, Game of Thrones. Um, It's just beautiful to watch a show be like, fuck that. I honor righteous anger. I honor it. So what you're saying is you, you are hanging in there for Dolores to stay Jesus overturning the money changers in the temple. Yes. Preach girl. Preach. If I have another Dolores situation, y'all, you're going to have to send me like tacos and whiskey. I can't, I can't do it again. Yeah. Same. So speaking of whiskey, tacos and unstableness, Um, I want to talk about William and the conversation that I have with myself every night in this similar fashion um, in my head. Um, So what do we make of this scene? Like there's, I mean, like from a theological perspective, and I mind you, I was just watching it. Like I watched like the second to last episode of The Leftovers where uh, Kevin has those conversations with like, I won't even, I don't want to break spoil it if you haven't seen it i mean i'm probably the only one that hasn't seen most of it but um with william i mean it's literally all these versions of himself from and then um uh i can't remember the name of the dude that owned delos before it was um whatchamacallit his wife delos senior isn't delos Delos or whatever yeah it's it's basically his the his wife's father and all of that stuff. And so, but he's ultimately having this conversation with himself. So like, there's like a theological element here. There's like such a philosophical element here that we need to talk about. But Brakely, basically at the end of the, down, end of the day, like he loses his shit <laughs> in so many ways. And he's finally, I think, forced to confront all these variations of himself to where he got right, where he is right now. And like my favorite comment is, is like when that little boy's going around saying like, I turn into this, like I'm okay with the rest of this, but like that I'm not okay with. I'm just going to be honest. If I had to sit in some type of peace circle with every version of myself that I have been, I too would lose my mind. Like I would be like, I mean, even thinking to who I was when I met both of you in grad school to today, if I had to have a conversation with just that version of me, it would be very surprising and might require a severe amount of Xanax. And so I felt like this this scene is like, for me, so anxiety ridden because it's a conversation with like, not just with yourself, but it's coming to terms with, I am everyone I have been. Like, and they're always with me. Yeah. I- I liked that the show got William to the point where he was actually having a breakthrough with his therapist and then she killed herself because she got the release of information and the, and the <laughs> and show she a hoe. like she was like all that yes. I'm like girl you got you got time on your hands yes and several patients apparently oh my god so but he so he's like in the midst of sort of having this breakthrough and talking about it and she ends up shutting down that session 
And so he never really gets to process. I'm curious if there's some sort of commentary there on the specific kind of therapy they're employing. But like, I, I don't know if you saw what his diagnosis was like on his screen where it says he actually is get, he's diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which of course your then you're surprised by that. Nobody, like nobody's surprised by that, but that makes complete sense when you put him in a virtual reality that he's then just going to confront all of the versions of himself. And of course it's no surprise that the one that he is in the present beats the crap out of all of the rest of them and is like, I'm the good guy. And like, it's, I mean, that is sort of the definition of what happens with narcissistic personality disorder. If you're not, if left untreated is like, you just continue to justify. If left untreated, you, you too will have an emotional breakdown where you will be forced to confront yourself and all past variations also may result in swelling, itching, and mass (laughs) hysteria. And vomiting. I don't know. Um, like, person, I, give it. Give us the philosophical breakdown of this. There's only one person in this world that can sit there and be like, okay, a room full of white men at different levels of their life, like having a conversation and ultimately one walks out of the room. Like really, what are we seeing there? Like there's so much there I want to break down, but like I just am looking at it and I'm like, what is this message? Well, the one takeaway that I got is what we've already talked about, which is that it was the the seeds for him being a violent psychopath were always there. And even when he was telling himself that he was a quote unquote nice guy, as in, you know, when he was young William, he actually was, that's just another facet of the kind of misogyny and violence that William had. I, in terms of like, I kind of looked at that as, as a deconstruction of self, right? Like many people think that they have this sense of self that is unitary, that it's unified, and that they are this self that has some kind of continuity from childhood to adulthood. I actually tend to be more on the um, you know deconstructive side of things and saying that that's there's a lot of interruptions and a lot of um, a lot of our actions that remain opaque to us that we're not always fully transparent to ourselves. And I tend to think that you know we have reverberations of our past self, but it is, we are different selves. Like that's sort of fundamentally how I think it works. But I think you kind of see that, that, and I think him sort of deciding in that virtual reality to, to kill all of the other elements of him is to say, I'm going to own all of the things, right? Like he's, he's overpowering and owning it in the only way he's ever known, which is through violence. Um, that I'm going to dominate and come out and I'm an, I am the hero. Like he just needs to tell himself he is the hero. He is the good guy. Um, which I clearly think he is not. I think it's fairly clear. He's definitely not a good guy, but he's wearing white. (laughs) The man in white now. I know. Um, okay. So ultimately we've got two episodes left of the show. Like where's it headed? I mean, like, uh, you mentioned right away that we also still have two other pearls that um, we don't know if it's like, actually Dolores's. I don't get to see Clementine by the end of this season. I don't know why I'm so invested in her. You I don't love her. I'm First pretty sure. Time. I'm pretty sure it is Clementine. Like I think because they did show the serial numbers on the screen, and one of them we had seen before. I think it is. It's been sort of confirmed off the record that it is Clementine. It's the other one that we don't know. 
And I think it might be Teddy. I was trying to think of like, what would be sort of the best, you know, gotcha for Dolores Prime. I don't know. Guess who's back. <laughs> I mean, I'm all here for seeing that guy again. Look, so James Teddy. Marston is notorious for begging any woman to take him back and never ending up with the girl. So, which is just honestly at this point, I think he's leaning into it. Um, I think this is about to get very messy. And I think the reason it's about to get messy is the introduction of the Caleb storyline is feeling real truncated right now. So when Liam was like, it was you, it was you. Like, I don't give a shit. Like that fundamentally, I think that matters. Like it, the fact that like, I'm like, I, I honestly don't care. Uh, I don't think we have enough time to get through it. Like if you're going to ask me for what I want worked out in these next two episodes before what I'm going to consider as a final season, like how you're going to build out an entire storyline for Caleb. And give us a whole episode on it basically. Right. I will say we haven't had a bottleneck episode in this entire season, so I am expecting to see it this week. And I think it's a Caleb-centered episode. See, and yeah. I would think that, like, I agree with you that the story for Caleb has been truncated, but I think it might be that, and especially because, you know, Aaron Paul, the actor, is a relatively big draw for a lot of people to the show. They might keep that into the, the next season and maybe his storyline plays a lot into whatever the end game is for the writers. Right. So it, I really hope this is one over more. the next season. I, I want this show to be done next season. Whatever like, it has to happen by this final episode. So I guess you're right. To a certain extent, what I'm, what I'm hoping for is that why, for whatever reason that he's been written into the show and you're right, he's like a huge name that by the end of episode eight, the setup for why he matters, why he's here, and why we should care for next season is entirely in place and not a not a, a mystery within a mystery. Um, yeah, and I ultimately, like, you mentioned it. You hit it, like, right away, Marcia. Like, all the things I really care about right now, like, I don't really care about Bernard and Stubbs. There was that little nugget, like, where, like, Bernard is, like, the, like, he's special. He's different. Like, there's something about him that, Again, another storyline that feels another storyline, and so and that's oh that is fundamentally you know where these shows the writers are either they get it so perfect and they just you know get it done right or it just runs on its own and so that's why this episode was like how do you write out Jeffrey Wright from almost an entire season like that man is a gift. That like everything he does, everything he could read me like, especially I, since Bernard I, was a centerpiece of seasons one and two in a lot agreed. of ways. Like, like I'm just like, com- it feels like when Aria went off to the like island t- to learn how to change her face, where I'm like, wait, what the fuck are we doing with Bernard right now? Like, and also because you don't drop lines like he's the only one that's irreplaceable. And yet we've maybe had 10 minutes of screen time with Bernard, who is one of the most fascinating characters in the show, has consistently been the foil to Dolores, right? Um, so I guess, I, I guess I'm kind of like upset. <laughs> I guess like I'm upset that like, I feel like there's quite a few little threads that are actually bigger than I thought they were um, that are just kind of, left there and also that like there's no way we have enough time to to make it feel like they were 
well executed in this season. Mm-hmm. Do you think Do- it's building up to a specific like who's going to be the the end boss game like the end boss fight basically to use video game language like who's the who's going to be in the the final battle showdown like who's in the room when it happens right yeah like, you've got Dolores we've I'm going to say we've got um Bernard because apparently he's irreplaceable we've got Maeve um because and whose side are they on right and are there even sides I don't know I don't know either. There's, I think Ciroc is at that table as well. From Liam's conversation, Caleb is also at that table. Um, so is the man in white, who is just pretending to not be the man in black. Um, so we've got six. We've got six main players, right, with some, some minor players in the background. We've got Charloris, right? We've got Stubbs. So we've got, like, buddy teams. Um, but... That's a lot of, that is a lot of front, frontline work to get to a point. Um, you got to start knocking people off. That's actually what happened with Game of Thrones. I was, I was um, listening to some of the writers talk about how they had to choose what stories to just forget about because there were too many stories and not enough time to tell the stories. Um, so we, we currently have six major players in a show. We got a whole, we got two long hours for the next two weeks. Right. And maybe like three years after that because of coronavirus, we actually really don't know when any show comes back at this point. Or if so we're like true. in the same position of like the writer strike where certain shows don't come I back. I know, I keep saying that. Is this Pushing Daisies? And I am still very resentful of Pushing Daisies and never getting like closure there. I heard you mention that in the last week's episode, I think, Marcine. I was like, I loved that show when it was on. I watched it religiously when it was it's on. A, it's a love letter. It is yeah. such a beautiful show. And I would say that I do, to anyone listening, if you're feeling some anxiety over your shows, um, I get it. Because I feel that way right now, too, um, with everything that I that I love going on. Even Love Island, man. <laughs> Even Love Island. Um, but... But yeah, like, it would be really sad to get to some type of, like, very epic, like, showdown at the end of this season, and then the industry has taken a massive hit, and everything is extremely uncertain. I have tons of friends who work in the the film industry, and, like, they honestly don't know when they're going back to filming on their shows. And so, um, I will say that 12-year-old Marcy is saying, you know what, that's what fan fiction is for. And we we will survive this, like we will. Oh, I'm going to write some fan fiction. <laughs> in my in my fan fiction, Maeve kills her enslaver, right? Because that's basically what Soraka is: is he's enslaved her, and I feel like she needs to be the one to kill him. Yeah, Soraka is Maeve's kill. That's her kill. Yeah, that's one. I yeah, that's one hundred percent. And notorious for saying that and then getting zero satisfaction. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of satisfaction and being too hot to handle and too much going on, um, we will find out uh, this week as well as next week. Kirsten, you'll come on back to talk about the finale. Uh, We can goad you into coming back. Um, That would be so thrilling. It would be so thrilling because I'd be happy to. Oh, there you have listeners. That's a contractual obligation now. But we are so glad that you all joined us again for another amazing episode. Kirsten, you just bring out the best in us. This is why Marcy tells everyone you're the most amazing person ever um, and why you're ultimately right. My taste in reality shows 
Um, we forgive you. I appreciate it. I just, it hurts my heart just a little bit. <laughs> I love you still. <laughs> and with that, we will metaphorically see y'all next week. Bye, Bye y'all. everyone. <laughs>